Good morning, folks. It is 10.30 a.m. here in Australia, Gold Coast, Australia. I'm having a good day because my coffee mug always says so. No bad days. And how can you have a bad day with that? And a nice cup of coffee. But what would be even better if my doorbell rang? There it is. I wonder who that is. Ladies and gentlemen, none other than Mr. Oznoy. Hey, Oz. How are you, buddy? Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Mate, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we're running a little bit late today, but we're musicians. We do that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I spaced out. <laughs> That's okay, man. You said you went for a bit of a run. Yeah, I've been doing some sessions here. I had to. I did some recordings here. And, you know, usually I do some tracks and, you know, then I have to comp them, edit them. So I need to take a break. You know, I can't just do it right away. So I do a bunch of recordings and I... I either go out for a run or do something. So I just spaced out. I was like, oh, I may go for a run and come back and finish it. Then, you know. <laughs> That's okay, mate. I, for a second, I thought you'd forgotten about me, but, uh, that, but we're, no, we're I here. Was, I'm going to start where I always start with people, and that's asking them. You know, hold on one second. Yeah. I got to say something. Those, the ADA and the Marshall behind you, I grew up playing those things. I love those things. I Absolutely. grew up playing those two preamps forever when I was in Israel. <laughs> yep, yep. I love uh, those things. I'd like to get some those back again just for the fuck of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so I was always an ADA guy myself all through the 90s. Yeah, I used to have ADA forever. Yeah, and... Um, I got that recently. I did a jingle for somebody. I, I do jingles and things. And as a contra deal, I knew they had one. I said, hey, I'll fucking have your ADA. Yeah. I tell you what, man, I've played a lot of really nice amplifiers since then, and it's not what I remembered it to be. There's it's a, not. No, there's a scratchiness about it. And I always, I wanted, to, I always wanted to compare it to the, the Marshall JMP1, and yeah. I borrowed that off a friend just recently. And... I'm thinking I like that. I've got over here, right beside it, a uh, an angle cab loader. These things are really oh. cool. So oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a, an impo impulse response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. So between the two of those, uh, just for direct recording, yeah, doing great. And I, I might build a little live rig out of the two of those. So, so do you like the Marshall better than the ADA? I'm going to have to do a really extensive test, and I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to do a, a video comparing the two of them. Uh, that's the version 180A. I think mine was a – they had a version 2, no, which was – No, that's the good one. The one is the one to have. They're, it is the one. that they, they came out with an MP2. That's what, not what I'm talking about. They, these came out in several versions. This is the very first oh. version. Um, they came out with one, like a, a, a version point. 1.2 yeah. or something that uh, was a little bit quieter and uh, just the, the access, there's a little dip switch on the top. Did yours have a switch on the top to change between live? Remember. You don't remember? I don't, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I'm dying to get one to hear how it sounds now. It's like it's – I'm really curious. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. Subscribe to my, my YouTube channel and uh, you will see a uh, comparison of the two very soon. Uh, wow. Yeah, what I am liking about the JMP one is the fact that it's yeah. got a dial, so that I can actually turn the dial to adjust the parameters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was always the thing with these was you'd be yeah, live. 
Yeah, yeah. No. yeah, and you'd have your preset, and you're thinking, oh, man, I just need a little bit more presence, and you'd go to adjust the presence, and you'd have to change the patch before you got a chance. The only to... thing I remember about the Marshall one is yeah. that, because I used the ADA for a bunch of years, like a lot, actually, and I remember when I tried a Marshall, I remember it had that Marshall sound that I really liked, but it sounded really small. It was kind of small sounding. That's the only thing I remember. I think at some point that's why I sold it. I got rid of it because of that. But I know that Billy Gibbons was using that for a long time as his main thing. So, yep. yep. You no. Know? But then again, Billy Gibbons uses seven gauge strings as well. And, and listen to him. What a motherfucker. But see how he sounds after all of that. It sounds like God still, yeah. you know? It's all in his hands. It's all on the fingers, folks. It's all in the fingers. It's on the fingers, but he knows how to do it, too. You have to know how to tweak the stuff to your specifications, I guess. You know? I think so. I think so. But anyhow, ask questions. That yeah. was just very... So, no, that, that's fine, man. That's fine. I, I, it's cool because people are generally looking at the gear I have behind me and, and people are always like, hey, what's that guitar? What's that guitar? Um, and I've got some, got some cool ones there. Um, yeah. What I wanted to ask you and how I usually start the conversation, mate, is... Um, how did the love affair with the guitar start for you? Um, I, I, I was 10 years old. I think I started to listen to the Beatles before, <laughs> but I actually wanted to play drums. I was kind of hitting pots and pans. Yep. And, um, my mom actually was already looking for a drum teacher for me. And then I had a friend of mine in school. Uh, I don't know, maybe I forgot what, uh, I was 10 years old, so, um, and he told me, hey, I'm studying guitar, come and see a lesson. So I went to the lesson with him. I don't remember it being exciting or anything, but I, I just started going to take guitar lessons. And I actually remember that the first couple of lessons, I wasn't even into it. I remember I wasn't really digging practicing or anything. It was kind of boring. It wasn't really exciting. But then... Um, my big brother started to play the bass, and he had a band, like a high school band. Um, actually, it was really a middle school band, but um, he had a friend of his that was like the, the kind of the singer in the band, and he used to come to our house and play songs, like Beatles songs and some Israeli pop songs, and then he starts playing those chords, and I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. So I started playing that. And that really got me going. Like, still, it was still nylon string guitar. But then my dad got this really crappy bass amp for my brother that he can play bass. And then <laughs> he got me this weird pickup that kind of glues to the nylon string guitar. But then I can plug it into the bass amp. And once I open and crank volume and I play the guitar, I was like, okay, well, that's more like it. <laughs> cool. So that was pretty much it after that. You know, it's just I just kept going, but I don't remember anything really exciting about it at all. I think only when I <clears throat> started to get into you know like chords and solos and Beatles stuff and you know like there was a lot of really good Israeli pop kind of rock stuff going on at the time, so I really dug that. You know, cool. So just things on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then yeah. and then the really interesting thing is. Um, <laughs> I don't know why, but my brother started to bring jazz records home. So, you know, McLaughlin, Aldin Yola, Chikoria, Kid Jarrett, that kind of stuff. And I remember, I think the first jazz concert I ever went to see was McLaughlin. He came and he played a trio with 
Jonas Helsberg, the bass player. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I remember that really freaked me out because he was playing so fast at the time on an acoustic guitar. And that really grabbed me. I think between that and that record, some uh, uh, Friday night in San Francisco, you know, that record with Paco de Lucia and Aldi Mjolan and McLaughlin, uh-huh. that was like not the greatest shred record of all times. Like they play so fast, you know? That stuff got me hooked, you know? Cool. And that got you down the, the path of the shred style, I guess, then, huh? Yeah, it's, it wasn't shred. I was never a shredder, although I grew up in the 80s, so I tried to do it. So I was doing tapping, I was playing fast, but I was never a really great shredder. I could never really figure out the Steve Vai stuff or the Van Halen stuff. I was always, I was more like, I always played jazz. So <clears throat> I was playing jazz, I was playing heavy rock at the same time, but I always did studio work and played pop music since I'm really young. That was kind of my luck. So pretty much from the age of 14 or 15 till I left Israel and moved to New York when I was 24. And till this day, I do session work. So cool. I played on a lot of pop stuff, you know, growing up. So it was great to have the chops, you know what I mean? To play rock and all that stuff. But I was always into the studio kind of, you know, thing. So although I grew up in the 80s, I tried to have the 80s sound with the whole thing. But... Um, my luck was that I was able to do a recording session and play with pop singers in Israel, like some big pop stars, you know? Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, I always played jazz. So I always played, like I studied jazz and I played jazz. So it was always like I had split personality. I had like two personalities going at the same time. Okay, okay. So just having a bit of a peek online at, um, at some videos on YouTube of you, you're very knowledgeable of the fretboard. Like I, I saw some um, some videos of you describing how you approach either this way diagonally or up and down or backwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where did the knowledge of the fretboard come for you? Um, I guess practicing always, you know, and I, I got to say that I never practiced technique, you know what I mean? I, I did practice technique for a very short time in the 80s because I ha- I got some of those, um, <clears throat> you know, like um, like Paul Gilbert and like Greg Howe and all those videos. What was it? H-I-H-R, uh, you know? Yeah, I know the ones. I know the ones. Uh, got, you know, so I had those and I was practicing some of that stuff, but it was for a pretty short time. And I think... <clears throat> My luck was that I always played jazz and I got heavily into bebop. So at some point I always tried to practice stuff that actually is more music than technique. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that helped the knowledge of the fretboard because you have to find everything in different positions, you know. The whole thing about three notes, four notes, two notes, that whole kind of, I call it directional playing, that came much later, like... I think I figured that out in the last couple of years, you know, I was practicing stuff like that. And I think some of it did come from heavy metal, like from the era of the Mm eighties, but I didn't think about it as rock. I thought about it more as like open in the neck, you know, different directions. So that's pretty much what, I guess that's how it came about. But I think most of the fretboard knowledge came from just practicing jazz. You know, he wasn't practicing patterns like rock patterns, you know. 
And, and you said you, you you started off doing the session work very early. Yeah. Um, yeah, very. What kind of lessons do you think that taught you at a young age? Well, the, the main, first of all, because I grew up in Israel, and there is great players in Israel, but the overall level when I was growing up wasn't that high, you know? So it wasn't like I was one of the top session players in Israel, but I played on a fair amount of recordings and a couple of big records. And um, I guess if I would be there for longer, I would probably do much more work. But the main thing that it taught me when I was really young is um, how to play with a click. Because if you don't have, if you don't have time, you can't play, you, you can't do studio work, period. Mm -hmm. And the better your time is, the better studio player you're gonna be. So that's the first thing. The second thing, um, uh, was probably, you know, have some, um, I guess, uh, approach to sounds, to guitar sounds. Um, and the third thing is probably know when to play and when not to play, which is something that you always learn, even now. You always, it's always hard, you know, like Miles always said that, you know, like the, the uh, what is it, I forget the, how he said it, but uh, the silent is music too, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's a pretty hard thing to be okay with, you know, <laughs> especially when you do studio work. So it's um, I, I think of it, all of it as one thing, you know. What what do you play on somebody's song, or you play a solo for somebody, or you play a jazz? It's all the same thing for me. I don't know. It's funny that you should say that you started out thinking that you wanted to play the drums, because that yeah. seems to be a common thing with people that I've been talking to. And I was the same. I was the same. I um, I used to see film clips and and watch the drummer. It's like, oh, they got their hands crossed over. Yeah, I could see what they're doing there. And and I started out playing the organ, um, and it had a drum machine built into it. So I used to mess around with with that and got you said playing to a click from a, an early age. I guess I was playing to a drum machine, and that got me fascinated with the technology side of things. Yeah. But things like that, I think, really build you towards being a, a great rhythm guitarist which you like you said yeah is a big part of the job especially in the studio world most of the time you're not taking big solos um, if you're a good rhythm guitar player you're gonna work for the rest of your life pretty much absolutely you know um so uh, yeah i i again i grew up in the 80s so the whole shred thing was pretty exciting to me so I try to stick it everywhere, even yeah. when I play pop artists and stuff. But <laughs> my luck was that I always had somehow, probably from doing studio work in a really young age, I always had really, like not really good time, I always had good time. So I got into rhythm guitar more like once I started to be aware of like James Brown and Stevie Wonder and Prince and people like that. And that was in my early 20s, maybe. Okay. Um, and then I st then I got into it pretty heavily, you know. So <clears throat> I remember when I moved to New York, it was '96, and I was 24. One of the first gigs that I've done, I, I remember it clearly because there was a guy named Arnie Lawrence, saxophone player, that he used to go back and forth from Israel to New York, and he started the new school in New York. He was a pretty heavy saxophone player. He played with like Dizzy Gillespie and a lot of people like that. And he had these gigs that were kind of like all jams, but he would get great players. So when I moved to New York, he already knew me from Israel. And he called me to do this one gig. And I remember I was going 
to the gig, and the drummer in that gig was Aaron Comas. He's the drummer from the Spin Doctors. Oh, cool. And he's a really great drummer. So I remember we, <clears throat> we played a set, <clears throat> and at the end of the set, he goes like, man, you got really good time. You play a really good rhythm. And that's what really grabs people. You know, the whole soloing thing, it's, it's important to some degree, but if you have good time and you play good rhythm, you're in business, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think even after that, there's a bunch of, I think that really grabs a lot of people's attention. If you play really good rhythm guitar, you know, at some point, look, when you do studio work or you do pop gigs and stuff, rhythm guitar is the most essential thing, really. Like the soloing is really secondary, you know? And so, even then, even then, I find in a session situation, you talk about you know, learning the shred and all that, and sometimes you have this this need as a guitar player to show off that you can do that. But I yeah. find if I'm doing sessions for people, no, they're just singing me a melody and just go, no, no, forget that bullshit, just play this, and they'll sing me a nice melody. Sure. So sure. a lot of that goes straight over it's, people's heads. It's very challenging. It's like I really love songwriting. I always loved songwriting. That's actually my favorite thing is great songs, you know? And, <laughs> you know, Tom Petty has been writing hits for years and years and years that are three chords, you know? Well, like, I don't know, a lot of the, the Beatles stuff actually harmonically is very advanced, but it's still, it's not advanced in a jazz kind of way. It's just, you know, but, but still, you know, if you listen to songs by, I don't know, George Harrison and stuff, it's pretty simple stuff. And then you hear... I don't know, either Mike Campbell or him playing like those really melodic solos. That's the hardest thing to do. Absolutely. By far, like to nail a little solo like that or a line like that, man. And that's the goal. That's where the money is. You know, like that's why people call you to a session to just get that vibe. You know, they don't really care if you play, you know, four note extreme, uh, on per string uh, tapping or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so going back to your early days uh, in, in Israel, do you remember what your first guitar was? Your first yes. serious guitar? Yeah. What was it? Oh, my first serious guitar? Well, first... well what did you look? You said you, you had like a classical that you put a pickup I on. had an on-string guitar that I still have in my dad's house. And it's, it's, it's whoever made that guitar needs to be hanged because it's so awful. Like the neck is that thick and it's horrible. It's like a crime. It needs to do, you know, and... I play. I started on it as a kid, so I don't even know how I barred the chords. It's like the worst neck I've ever, ever played. And my dad still has it in the house, you know? So that was the first guitar. And then um, then I got this some kind of copy of a Les Paul that one time I did a gig at a high school with some friends and it fell and completely broke to pieces, you know? <laughs> After that, you know, the first real guitar that I had was a, a Ivan as one of those road stars, you know, with two humbuckers. Yep. So that was the first one. And then after that, I got a Charvelle. That was a big deal. Like, a, you know what I mean? That was yeah. when the Charvelle thing was big. I remember the Tina Turner at the time was the biggest thing and her guitar player used to play a Charvelle. Yep. It was a great guitar player. I don't know his name, but, and I was like, oh man, this is the thing, you know? Did it have a, a pointy headstock? Yeah. It did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the Charvels from the 80s, you know, from that time. That was the, you know, that was the guitar. Yeah. You know, actually, something really interesting is <clears throat> I have two childhood friends of mine in Israel 
that each of them has that one of those guitars. One has my Ibanez and one has my Ibanez, uh, my uh, Charvel. Cool. Yeah, I'm not really in touch with them, but a couple of years ago they sent me a photo of both of those guitars because they're still friends. And every time I go to Israel, I try to meet them, but it never happens because I want to see the guitars again. You know? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's so cool. And what about amps? What What did you play through as an amp back then? Ooh, that was rough. I think, um, let me think about this. I think there was some Roland Cube keyboard amp that was around at the time somehow from, I don't remember how. The silver one? Was it a silver one? Yeah, the silver one, yeah. That was my first amp experience. The high school that I went to had one of those, and I was playing through that. So no distortion, just clean with a bit of reverb. That was my introduction too. I don't remember reverb or anything. So that was that. And then I got it somehow. There's those Yamaha amps that are all plastic. Yamaha XL something. Horrendous sounding amp. So I had all those different versions. Like I had a small one, a bigger one, another big one. And those I played for a long time. But those were like amps that were like for home or for little gigs. Once I got more professional and had to go do real gigs, then I got my first real amp was the Laney Head. Nice. And, and, a four, and a 210 cabinet with Fane speakers. Those are great speakers, by the way. Okay. That was the first thing. And after that, I bought an ADA, and I used the power amp of the Laney. And after that, I started to buy, yep. And after that, I started to buy like those stereo power amps and use the ADA with that and then I used the Marshall with that and then at some point I became an adult and I got a Marshall JCM 90, 900 mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was when I was already kind of doing some real professional work I guess and then I got a twin river with those black knobs you know they used to have red knobs and yep. black knobs uh-huh. that, uh, actually that one with the black knobs actually sent that one to New York I had it in New York Cool. Yeah. Cool. So those were the, the those were the main amps that I used till I moved to New York. You know, it, it's funny you said you, you got a real amp. You got the Marshall. I can remember back in the day, back in the nineties, and I had my little ADA rig. I used to use a Quadroverb for effects for that. Oh, uh, I used Quadroverb too. Yeah, we had this very similar rigs. Oh, uh, what power amp did you have? Oof. I know, my my dream was to have the Boogie Stereo 9091, 9095, whatever it was. Yep. It was my dream, but it was so expensive to get that in Israel. It was it cost like a fortune. So I never was able to get. I think I had some really crappy PV stereo amp, and then I had some other weird little things that all sounded like ass, really. Yeah. They sounded thin and not good at all, and. So, and then I had those EV speakers. My dream was to get a Triaxis and a stereo 95-95 like uh, boogie left and right and those two boogie cabinets. That was my, my dream that was ring. The dream, yeah. yeah. Maybe now is the time to get that. I, mine, I had a solid state power amp, uh, Carver. PM. I think I had a Carver for a minute. 150 watts aside, and I ran two yes, Marshall, yes. two Marshall quad boxes with that. Uh, they were I the had- valve state boxes, um, but man, that was my rig all through the 90s. I had that thing. Wow, we I had. had 
identical rigs. How about that? Here I here's what else I remember. I yeah. remember having Carvin for a minute. I had the Carvin preamp and power amp. Okay. Now mine was a Carver, not Carvin. No, 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 I know. I had that yeah, Carver. Yep. And, yeah, 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 I know cool. what that is. Yeah. I, you know what? Maybe I didn't. Have, I can't remember. I remember it pretty clearly. I don't know if I actually. I think I had it for a minute. Yeah. You so, I, I love that rig. It was just one little four-unit rack space. Yeah, that's what I had. Same thing. Yeah, and just in an SKB case, and I could just take that with me everywhere. Um, <laughs> that was that was the rig of the day. And man, the, the only thing I didn't like, as as I said before, was not being able to adjust things on the fly, yeah, having to go and press menus and things. But apart from that, I had my sound my sounds dialed, and it just MIDI all the way. Just press a button. None of this tap dancing. Yeah, I had the MIDI controller from the ADA. And- yep. Yeah. They were terrible. The the uh, the buttons on those would just fuck yeah. up all the yeah. time. You're right. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's so funny to talk about. It. I haven't thought about it or talked about it since I don't know. <laughs> but they they were the, all the rage. Um, I can remember seeing them in in all the magazines, and I, I talked about it. For- yeah, I remember that Paul Gilbert was a big ADA user, and you can hear it on those a lot of those recordings. You just hear that ADA sound. I think it's ADA at least from you know it might be just a Marshall at the end of the day, but. To me, some of that stuff really sounds like an ADA, especially when you listen to that instructional video of his. You can really hear that sound. And you're like, oh, that's that ADA. Yeah, that, that stereo chorus is really good. No, the ADA stereo chorus is great, no? I want to go back to using a rack, and I want to get the Synergy rack. Are you aware of the Synergy with the modules? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. I want to get one of those, uh, but keep the ADA for the solid state clean with the the analog chorus, because that is a beautiful sound. Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing I find digital chorus just isn't the same as uh, as an analog. I've got one of those Arion, um, oh, yeah, 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 like, yeah. like Landau uses, and sure. I, whenever I buy a digital unit, I, I put the, the two side by side, and the chorus on that little plastic pedal just makes anything digital sound stupid. Like, is this even yeah. on? Yeah, it just doesn't have yeah. any thickness. Well, so, that was the 80s, you know, everything was kind of like this digitalized, not digital like now, but more, you know, thin and processed. <laughs> so you know? fast forward to 96, moved to New York at 24. Yeah. What what kind of gear did you, you didn't bring the, the gear with you, did you? Or did you, no? I brought, I brought, I brought my Strat. When I moved to New York, I brought my Strat that is that I had for years. I sold it a long time ago. I had a, like a '62 reissue Strat with the, it's kind of like wood color, mm-hmm. and it had lace sensor pickups in it. Actually, believe it or not, but I actually loved. I, I always loved those pickups. I've done a bunch of stuff with it. But anyhow, I, I brought that, and I brought a 175 Gibson. All right. Because I, mean, I was playing jazz. I, I still play jazz, but at the time I was playing it on a hollow body. Um, and then that's it. And then I, I bought a Silverface 70s Deluxe Amp from a friend. Um, <laughs> and that was it. And then at some point, my parents or somehow somebody brought me my Music Man Van Halen model that I still have and I still use. Those guitars unbelievably good. Wow. Wow. Yeah. thing is one of the greatest guitars on the planet. And I have it and I still use it sometimes. And then what happened? Yeah, you have a question about the, the 
I was going to say about the Music Man. Um, a friend of mine, um, they opened for Van Halen back in early nineties, and yeah, he was that. he was given one by by Eddie Van Halen, and. Oh, yeah, so this is I can remember the early '90s, and this is my friend Dave yeah. Leslie from the band The Baby Animals. Yeah, they opened for the on the for unlawful carnal knowledge tour for Van Halen. Um, them and Alice in Chains, I think, were the two bands that that did um, the the different legs of the tour. Uh, Was given one by 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 Eddie, Ed. and he came to my place for a jam one time, and he brought that. So it was a genuine. Music Man from Eddie and a Washburn N4 that was personally Nuno's as well, uh, because yeah, the singer singer of his band was married to, to Nuno Betancourt for many years. So there I was as a teenage kid, uh, all late teens, sitting on in my bedroom with one of my guitar idols at the time, um, with a genuine guitar that was given to him by Eddie Van Halen and another one yeah. by by Nuno, and I was just like. This is fucking crazy. Is this for real? <laughs> Actually, I remember when I bought the Music Man guitar, I was still in Israel, and I wanted to get a guitar on that kind of style. Yep. And um, <laughs> I was trying to decide between the Nuno guitar, the, the Van Halen guitar, the Music Man guitar, and the Valiard uh, Steve Lukather guitar. I had a value and, and I decide And I decided to go with the Van Halen guitar, with a Music Man guitar, which... I'm so happy because, you know, that guitar is still holding up. Like, it's still as great as, you know, it, it's kind of a really weird one-off instrument that is just extraordinary. I still use it sometimes. I have to play a really heavy kind of like a rock, modern rock solo. Yeah. I used it, I think, the other day on something, and it's great. Cool, cool. I had a Valley yeah. Arts as well. I had yeah. just a standard pro, but... Some of the other standard pros I've seen weren't of the quality of this. So I'm not too sure of the the um, the history of them, but this was one of the, the handmade in in LA ones. Um, I sold it. A guy hassled me for many years to sell it, and I did a few years ago. I'm going to hit him up and see if he wants to sell it back to me because I really want to get a Strat style guitar with a Floyd Rose on it again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not so sold on the EMGs in it. I'd probably put something yeah, different in it now. now. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you're 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 a Strat man through and through these days, though, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, every every I have a Les Paul and I have Tellys and stuff. Like I have other guitars, but my main guitar is like a Strat and a Telly. Although I've been using on my last couple of records, I've been using a Les Paul for a bunch of stuff. A lot oh, really? actually. Yep. Yeah, and also I even use a Gretsch for a couple of things, you know. Yep. Uh, I was going to say that a lot of the the strats that you uh, that you play is that someone at your door? No, it's uh, my phone. Hold on one second. I can hold on. Let me just make sure I turn this off. That's fine. I'm just going to cut to my little room here so people can see all my beautiful guitars. Got some nice ones. Oh, it's all backwards. It's all backwards. Yeah. I've had Anyhow, that one there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So I was going to ask you uh, about the strats. They look like they're very old strats, or are they uh, relics? Um, I've been using custom shops forever. I, I can't. I can't afford. You know, I have really kind of expensive taste. When it comes, like, if I play vintage guitars, the ones that I really like are the ones that are just extraordinary, you know what I mean? 
So I'm not going to put 20 or 30 grand on a guitar. It's not even, even if I had the money and I would do it, you can't tour with it. You can't really do any fret work or anything. It's just not making sense for me. And I don't, and I'm not into having a guitar that I'm not going to use regularly. Like a guitar to me is something that you have to use all the time. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> if the vintage guitars were reasonably priced, I would have only vintage guitars, you know, but they're not. So it's kind of frustrating, but it is what it is. You know, it's just like, so I had several um, custom shop strats that actually Fender made for me. And recently, the, the latest up, upgrades that I've done was, um, I really like John Cruz's work. And he's a kind of a friend of mine. He's like the master builder. And he, <laughs> I have three of his guitars. I have two tellies and one Strat. This Strat is his. And they're really, really good. They feel and, and look like old guitars. I don't think they sound probably as good as a real good old guitar, but they sound really, really good and they really have that kind of old kind of feel. So let's put it like that. It's good enough for me. You know, if, again, if, 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 uh, if those vintage guitars wouldn't be crazy expensive, I would only have that. But, you know, the other thing that I don't like also is, I don't, you know, sometimes you can find those vintage guitars that are players, but I don't want to get a guitar that had a headstock broken or some little thing that took the price down. It's like, I'm not into that, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. And the ones that are really nice, that I usually are the ones that I really like, they're a fortune, you know? So mm. it's like, I'm not, I, I just, it doesn't make sense for me to do it, you know? I had a, uh, a genuine 1952 telly here about a year ago and a 52 deluxe amplifier to go with it and i surprised my friend louis shelton i'm not sure if you know of louis shelton he's a he was a studio guy date back to the monkeys and jackson five etc yeah uh, so he just lives around the corner from me and i brought him over because i knew that his first guitar was a 52 telly and oh, wow. I, su I surprised him and i had a couple of reissues and we had his reissue and then i pulled out the real one and sat down and had a bit of a, a chat over that. So if people have a look on my channel, you, you'll find that, Louis Shelton and the 52 Telly. But yeah. the sound of that thing and the feel of that thing was just amazing. I know. It's, it's, it's frustrating. I, I know I have a lot of friends that have the old stuff, and I played some really, really, really expensive guitars too. Not all of them are always amazing, but the ones that are great, it's just it's kind of depressing. But... I don't know what I'm gonna do. What struck me about this guitar was how light it was. Um, yeah, yeah. When I picked it up, it it was an, an ash body, and I found ash guitars could be either extremely light or extremely heavy. I've got a a Richie Cotson <coughs> Stratocaster back there that I've heavily modified that one there, and that is so fucking heavy. Like you pick that up and it's whoa, what, bricks in this side yeah, yeah. inside this thing. <laughs> but yeah, this particular fifty-two Tele. <laughs> ridiculously light but just the resonance you'd play it not plugged in and play a chord on it and it just really struck you how resonant that guitar was yeah. sure. I, I don't know if they were doing something different back then or whether the, the wood has aged in time I don't know I really don't know what it is but there's a mojo there so um, yeah. you, you talked about some of the gear that you use back in the day yeah. what, what's your go to these days 
Um, so I have a couple of those John Cruz strats. Mm -hmm. I have one strat. It's this make. I'll show you. It's this this is the one that I still have that I have for a long time. It's this. It's this red one. You'll see me play it a lot. Uh huh. So this is um, Fender. Fender made me two guitars. I kind of ordered them from them directly, and they made them to kind of. It wasn't to my specs. It's just like I wanted '60s style. So I had a Rosewood one that was playing for a long time, like a 68, and this is a 68 um, Maple, and it's great. Actually, Eric Johnson wanted to buy it from me for years. It's been like our joke for many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's that, and then I have this strand, I have a couple of Tellys, those are all John Cruz. Then I have a, <clears throat> a Les Paul there, that's really great. I have, um, I have um, a baritone, um, James Tressard, baritone, I really love. I have a Gretsch Duojet, the Stephen Stern, actually, one of those master builds. Those are great. And <laughs> I, got, I got a couple other things here, but that's the, those are the main guitars. Um, then I have, I mostly play Turok amps. Oh, really? Either, tu either Turoks or Marshalls. So I have two old Marshalls, two Plexes. I have a 100-watt and a 50-watt Plexes. Um, and then I have a lot of two rock amps, actually. <laughs> really, really, okay. Actually, the best thing I own in life is the two rock TS1 amp. <laughs> that nice. I, yeah, that thing is pretty extraordinary. So that's pretty much what I use Fender amps. I use I have I have a twin head here for recording. I barely use it live, and I have um, you know, I have like a Princeton or, or the Lux and stuff, but. Most of what I use if I tour or if I play live, unless it's a small gig, is Tool Rock or Martian. Okay. And no, I have pedals. Okay, as you tell me about your pedals, I'm just going to go quickly take a, a bio break, as they call it, because I drink way too much coffee before I do this. But okay. I can still hear you. I'll be back in 30 seconds. So, about your pedals. What's that? I'm just going to go take a quick break while oh, you tell oh, us about oh, your pedals. Oh, but I have tons of pedals. All right, you I, go. I'll, uh... you, you, you talk away. I can still hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have so many pedals, but uh, I have a couple of different pedal boards, but um, it, they're all kind of the same. There's certain things that I use on all of those pedal boards. So it's I have this um, ACRC um, Oz. It's called. It's like a pedal that I made for me, Exotic. So that's kind of my main one of my main booster pedals. Then I have a TS808 with an analog man. Um, uh, mode that I use all the time, and then I have uh, a Vamoram Fuzz. It's called the Oz Fuzz that they made for me also. So those are the three major, um, how do you call it, like overdrives or distortion pedals. And then I use Line 6 for a lot of stuff. Like I used to use the M9 and M13, and before that I used the DL4. And now I, now I use the HX effects that I'm... I kind of like, but I'm having a hard time with, um, and and the rest of the stuff is just other stuff that you know, like I have a Leslie pedal from DSL uh, that I use forever. Those are like the main things, and then other things on the side, you know. Cool. So you, you said you've got a, a few overdrives there that have got your name on them. Um, yeah. What kind of things did you specify when you were getting your own well, overdrive pedals? The, the, the 808, the Ibanez 808 doesn't have my name on it. It's just like 
I like that sound, and uh, Analog Man does this one really nice mod. I think it's called a Silver Mod or something. So that's what I've been using. Um, if you want that kind of twangy Stevie Ray Vaughan-ish sound. Um, <coughs> Vemora made me a, a, a fuzz pedal. There's a story behind it. The story is, um, I love that company. They make some of the greatest pedals ever made. So um, I started to use the, one of those Shanks fuzz, fuzzes, but I, it never had enough gain for me. So I always asked them, can you send me one with more gain? So they kept sending me some, but it was still never, I had one that was good and the rest of them was kind of not quite that. So one of the tours that I did in Japan, they came, they're Japanese, so they came to the soundcheck and <laughs> they had this pedal. They go like, hey, we made you this pedal, try it. And I tried it and it was fantastic. And I ended up doing the whole tour. It was the beginning of an Asian tour. I had the whole tour playing on that pedal. I even did a one gig where they didn't have a transformer for my pedal, but I did the whole gig with that pedal. Oh, really? And it was fantastic, yeah. Um, and actually, there's a live record out of that tour. It's called uh, Asian Twist. Uh, it's me and Dave Weckl and uh, ATN Mbappe. And <laughs> you can hear that fuzz on a couple of tracks there, you know? So when I got home... I, at some point, I just talked to them. I was like, why don't you just make it like a model, you know, with my name on it? Because nobody has that fast. You made it for me. And they did. I have to say, it took them a while to get it right because they use all these old parts. And I think because it's really limited, they have a limited amount of parts. So I think they only made like four or 500 of those pedals that I have okay. with my name. And I think the reason for it is because if they don't have the vintage parts and um, they tried to do it with parts that were not vintage and it just didn't work. They kept showing me stuff and I was like, no, it's not that. And then once they put everything did, you know, in the right way, it sounded right, but it's expensive and it's, uh, but it's fantastic. It's really great. So that's one. And then I always been an exotic fan. Like since they started, I think Exotic is actually probably the most um, important company for the 21st, 21st century for guitars because <clears throat> before they came out, there was no there was no pedals in the market that were um, that that you, like that was transparent to the sound of the guitar. They were the first company that made pedals that was transparent, like that you would push the pedal and you still hear the same sound from the guitar. So that, to my opinion, that changed the whole guitar world really since, uh, since that, in terms of pedals. So I used, forever, I used the AC into the RC. That was kind of my, the R, sorry, the RC into the AC, that was my lead tone on a lot of my records, really. It wow. still actually still is, that's my, it is my lead tone. But at some point, <laughs> I asked him if they can put it in one, pedal for me and then I also wanted more gain on the a on the RC side just in case it's the same thing as what Scott Henderson pedal is it's like a, Scott has this RC pedal that has a switch for more gain so my pedal is just more gain but you know on the knob you can go like you know you can go to you go to 10 and then you can go to 20 you know what I mean cool cool <laughs> nice one. so they put my name on it and they did it and um, it's fantastic. Like, I got to say that I have a rack here for recording. It's like right underneath here. Mm -hmm. And I used to have the RC and the AC here. 
the separate pedals for years. And they sound great, but recently I was like, you know what, let me try to put my pedal instead, because I've been using that for since it started. You know, I've been using it since on all my boards and stuff. And I put it, and it, to me it sounds better, because I don't I think there's something about the way they did it just sounds more pure, you know? Okay. So I really like that pedal. It's called RC, uh, ACRC Oz, whatever. Nice. I have to look up those. I got to say, Exotic makes some beautiful guitars as well, man. I've I've played yeah, some of their Stratocasters, and just thought, I have one of the guitars. Yeah, I have one of the guitars here. I use I use it on some tours actually. I it's I use it half a step down. It sounds really good. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Now you said you got an HX effects as well, but you're not quite gelling with that, or you're having a hard no, time with it. The sound the sound is great. Like the sounds are fantastic, but. I'm having a hard time, I don't know, like there's, I'm just having a hard time getting into the, it, it, it's just a little uncomfortable for me to get into the programming part of it, you know? Yeah. And I had it for a while and I work with it all the time and it's fine and it sounds great, but I don't know, that interface, you know, like when you have to get in and you touch certain things to get to the menus, I don't know, it's like it's not comfortable for me. I have to agree. I've got one just beside behind me. Can I see it? Oh, yeah. over there, right beside. That's one. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. there. Um, yeah, you you accidentally touch one of the uh, the buttons, yeah. and next thing, yeah, there. What were they called? The M M thirteen and the M fours. I, I, I used the M thirteen and the M nine for years and years and years. I love those things, but they're bugging. They have a bug with a. Foot switches with uh, with um, expression pedals. Oh, really? Sometimes express, yeah. And I've done so many tours with them, and I would start playing a show, and suddenly my expression pedals don't work. So I have to go down on the pedal and start fucking around with it. And I call them so many times. They send me so many pedals. I probably had like 30 or 20 M9s and like I don't know how many M13s because they. They, they, at some point they break, they don't really break, they just have these problems and um, so at some point like the HX doesn't have any of those issues, you know. But there's something about the M9 or M13 that are so easy to access and I miss that. Mm. Well, know? on the box it says bonehead simple and i got to agree, it is bonehead simple. Yeah, you know when you do also, when you're playing live, you know, usually try not to touch anything. You set it up and that's it. But when you do recording sessions, you need you need really fast access all the time to stuff. Yep. And I had it in my rack for a minute, and I had to take it out. It's just like it, it was. It's just it's not like the fact that you have to go into menus to access the parameters was just too much. You know, for me. I still use it live all the time, and I still sometimes there's certain sounds I can only get from the Line Six. Like there's nothing else I can get it except for that. So this is kind of like my box of tricks. So when I have to, I plug it in for, for basic stuff, like basic delays and stuff. I use like Strymon and stuff like that because, or even or Boss pedals that I are my favorite really, just because the access they sound good and the access is so easy and fast. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Very opposite to. Uh us using the ADA and the quadruver back in the 90s, Oh, my huh? God. That was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Oz, I, I had a bit of a listen to uh, to your album last night. Um, is it called Schizophrenic? Schizophonic? Mm -hmm. uh, schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. um, 
man, the grooves on that album. <laughs> I love the whole album. That's from I I don't know. That's like that's like five or six albums ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the first thing that came up on um, on Spotify. Now, actually, somebody posted a link. When I posted a link to us doing this today, somebody um, posted yeah, yeah, a yeah. link to it, and that, I clicked on that, and I, and I had a listen and just went, wow, just the, the groove. And, um, yeah, yeah. Man, so you've played with some serious cats over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is Who's the most standout musicians that you've played with to you? You know, I played with a lot of people, and I had a lot of people play on my records. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I had a conversation about it some, with somebody yesterday. <clears throat> I don't play. I, I had I played with Vinnie Coluto on and off for years, and he played on a bunch of my records, and um, and I've done very few live gigs with him, but I've done some, and I gotta say, and to some degree, that he's probably the best player I've ever played with. Yeah. Because he's a he's a real genius and he's he's on that level. He's on the kind of level on drums of what like Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea is on piano. And I never played with either of those guys, but so Vinny in a way is like the best player I ever played with. You know yeah. what I mean? It's hard for me to say. You know, like I play with Dave Weckl regularly and I actually played the best with Weckl. I played better with Weckl than with Vinny. But Vinny is such an extreme talent. It's just so freaky, you know. It's like a whole other level than anything you're used to. It's really extraordinary. And, and in what way? What what sets him apart from from the other players? I don't. I can't even explain it. Um, um, he's a genius, like a real genius. Not not taken from the fact that Weckl is a genius too, or Steve Ferroni for the same, you know, conversation. Like you know, like playing with Steve Ferroni, he plays two and four, and it sounds like the greatest thing you ever heard in your life. Like actually, the drummer that is most comfortable for me to play with is Steve Ferroni. It's like magical, you know. Mm -hmm. And he plays those really simple feel. It doesn't have any chops, but there's a reason why he played with Tom Petty for like twenty something years, and he played on gazillion records, you know. I love drummers. I can talk about drummers for a long time. And of oh. course, of course, Keith Carlock is a, one of my favorites. And also Anton Fig in New York. Those are great guys that I've played with here for bazillion years, you know. Um, and then, of course, there's the jazz guys that I play with, like Jeff Tane Watts and, I don't know, Lenny White, Mike Clark, people like that. So, And then there's bass players. But with bass players... Most of my, like my bass players that I use in New York and or most of my records are Will, Will Lee and yep. James Venus. Those are my two favorites. I use Jimmy Haslip on a lot of tours. He's great. Um, I use Patatucci on a bunch of stuff. On my last two records, I use Patatucci. And I played a bunch of jazz with him too. So, um, you know, and then I have all those guests on my records that I, you know, I used to have Alan Toussaint play on my records, and he used to play with us live too. I don't know, Chikoria played on my record, and Chris Potter played on a, a bunch of stuff. Um, I don't know. It's like I'm at this point where I don't, you know, I like to. I know it's gonna sound very. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm above anybody. 
But I like to play with the originals, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't want to play with someone that just sounds like Vinnie Caliuto and, like, sound like Chikoria. I'm going to call Chikoria, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. what interested me. It interested me. So <laughs> my luck is that I can get those guys normally so I can call them and I was able, you know, I can get those guys to play. So That's great. I, I have a bit yeah. of a saying when it comes to gear or just work ethic, there's no point fucking around. Is what yeah. I'm saying. And it sounds like that's what you're saying. Why get an imitation? Plus to, also, plus, to me, also, those guys kind of teach me and put me on a different level. You know, again, I've been playing with Dave Wackel for like over 10 years now, but playing with him is really a pretty intense experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I got used to it and we have a really strong thing going on, but it's still, it's pretty. You know, it's pretty intense, you know, and I like that. That's what that's what gets me going, you know, like I have to be on my toes and I have to try to play as good as I can, you know. Cool, cool. Who haven't you played with that you'd like to play with? I never played with Steve Gadd. I've known Gadd for a bunch of years, a really nice guy and everything. I never played with Gadd. Um, you know, this is going to be pretty funny, but... There's a bunch of jazz guys that are all New York guys or based kind of around the New York scene that I never able I was I never able to play with. And I'm a huge fan of theirs. Like Bill Stewart or like Brian Blade or like Eric Harlan and you know, some of those guys I, I call them to do stuff, but they're so busy and I never able to play with those guys, you know. So those are more of the guys that I I'm interested in playing with, you know, because I play with a lot of the other more like studio or like, you know, guys. Uh, I, I got to think of who else. Um, I don't know. Those are, who else do I want to play with? <laughs> I love to play with Marcus Miller. Yeah? Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, cool. I love to play with Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, but, you know, yeah. Wayne Shorter. <laughs> Nice, nice. Well, if any of those guys are watching, um, they might they might see the, the rerun of this and go, hey, Osnoy wants to play with me. Let's get in touch. I, I'm Brad Melda. Brad Melda is also one of my... Uh, I'm more into the jazz guys, i got to be honest, you know? So, you, you said you're, you're into the, the, the 90s, uh, sorry, the 80s shred, uh, etc. How did you get into the jazz side of things? Because that's something that's very foreign to me. I, I grew up... Well, well, here's the thing. I always studied jazz and was playing jazz. The 80s thing was a period. After the after the 80s shred thing, I moved on to like Stevie Ray Vaughan and blues and Jeff Beck and Eric Johnson and those kind of things. The 80s shred was just when I was growing up. It was so exciting on guitar, you know? Yeah. But that kind of went over pretty quick. Jazz was always there since I started and then I got pretty deep into it and I studied bebop and I had a big jazz guitar and I was a West Montgomery clone for many years. Not many years, for a couple of years and then I started, you know, I'm a, totally into that. You know, I'm more of a jazz player than a rock player or blue, definitely a blue, not a blues player, but you know. Yep. Yeah. How much guitar do you actually play when you're not um, playing doing sessions or playing with all these great players, do you find much time to, to practice or do you find you're just playing all the time with these guys and you don't need to practice? Well, it's a good question because now with the whole Corona thing, everything's upside down. So it's weird. It's, um, I thought that now I'll have a lot more time to practice, but it's still, I, I'm having a hard time to find 
time to like to actually get focus and practice. I do practice mostly recently. I practice more classical guitar because I like that music and I try to develop my finger picking. Cool, cool. And, and then I do certain things, you know, but it's it's not consistent. I, I have plans to practice and I have tons of stuff that I can practice, but it always kind of slips away. I don't know why, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sure, sure. And you've done a fair bit of teaching over the years too? I always teach. I don't teach like crazy, like a lot. I teach people come to me pretty much from all over the world and just kind of, they mostly take one lesson or a, very, or a few. Um, but it's been going on like that for years. You know, now when the, the whole Corona thing started, um, uh, there was a whole online thing. Everybody suddenly wants online lessons. So I've done a lot of online lessons for a, for a minute. Now it kind of slowed down. So I don't know. I just do it. You know, it's, um, I'm not one of those teachers that can keep you for like every week for, I don't know, for a year. I'm actually, I don't actually don't teach like that. I, I teach more concepts and ideas of how to practice and, you know, a lot of it's really interesting the teaching thing because I say that ninety percent of the people that come to me are all in the same place where they want to play a certain way. They go, "Oh, we want to play like you," or you mix the jazz and the blues, but they don't really understand where it's really coming from and how to get there. And once I start showing them, I realize that their basic foundation is really weak. So I have to go back, and a lot of people just don't want to do the work, but it's just. There's no shortcuts in music, you know, so it's, I can see, I remember pretty clearly that if, like when people used to come to my house for a lesson, within like five minutes, I can tell if the guy's going to get it or not, like if it's going to be able to stick or not, you know, because some people don't want the, the they don't want to do their work, they just want to have fun, you know, mm -hmm. which is fine with me. But for that, I don't know if I'm the right teacher for that. You know, I don't teach licks. You know. Sure, sure. Uh, so I, I, I tend to agree with the um, not having to to do lessons that go constantly. Like when I take a lesson with somebody, I'll get a bunch of information, and then I will process process that for months, yeah. years, even. I, I took an online lesson with a guy over here in in Australia, James Norbert Ivani, and I had him as a guest, when was that, on Monday? And I said to him, I took one lesson with him about two years ago, and he taught me how he warms up in the morning, how, how he practices to get the dexterity in his fingers. And I learned so much from that, and I still, when I pick up the guitar, will go through that routine, and it really improved my, my picking. If I had have gone weekly, I probably would have skipped over that and gone, okay, that was this week, now we're moving on to something else. So I do get that, why people... You know, I, I got to say, there's a lot of things I can talk about when it comes to teaching because the whole YouTube phenomenon, I think, completely fucked up everything in terms of teaching because everybody and their mother wants to make a little quick money on YouTube. So, so they, they become teachers and most of the stuff on YouTube is awful. It's just really bad information. And a lot of people think that's, they, they can get that and it's a shortcut, but that's not a shortcut. You don't really learn anything from it. If somebody teaches you the lick from Hotel California, instead of you listening to the record and grabbing that lick and understanding what's going on, that ain't going to get you anywhere. So <laughs> there's so much of that online now and all this like online school and this and that, and a lot of it is 
awfully bad, you know, and it's mm. like, you know, I, again, I don't want to sound like I'm above anybody because, you know, I, you can learn from a lot of people and I look at a lot of that stuff sometimes just because I, I do get ideas sometimes, but I thought of, I'm thinking of at some point just doing one of those kind of, kind of online guitar schools just because, I don't know, I think some of the stuff that I teach are more like concept and methods that can get you much further along the not the right way but in a way where you can really develop properly than all that crap that's on YouTube so I don't know I might do it at some point just because it's like it's pretty painful for me to see sometimes what's going on and the other thing is 90% of the students that come to me 95% they all do that stuff and I go like no 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 that's that ain't gonna work you know so it's like I see it in front of my face all the time I even have people that finish like Berkeley and university that's come to me and I go like, what did you study for four years if you don't even know this or that, you know? Sure. So sure. it's, it's sure. weird. I don't know. Again, maybe I'm missing something, but. Now you struck on something there when you said about listening to things yourself and working it out yourself. Now you can just Google or look at YouTube and people will show you how to play things. And I think, People are missing out on developing their own style because of that, aren't they? Like when, as you know, a kid, it's not about developing. Developing your own style is a choice. You don't have to have your own style. You can just be a really great guitar player that plays great blues or rock, or just you don't have to have your own style. You know, it's nothing. Having your own style or your own sound is it's great, but it's not something that you have to have. You can just be a good guitar player. It's fine, you know. But um, um, I think you have to be able to understand the instrument and understand music, you know, and like to understand how it works. And then you can come up with your own things or you can have more control over the neck and you ha you're more free, you know. Mm -hmm. Then, again, looking at some guy on YouTube showing you a couple of bands or whatever, really, for that, you know. So I was... Seeing as you've you've played so much over the years, have you had, ever had any injuries from playing? Like any issues with tendonitis or? I'm not really. Uh, thank God, but um, only when I was a kid practicing a lot, I got a little bit of it. But I remember, you know, the one thing I I remember is after that, every time I I start to feel any pain, it doesn't matter. It could be in your neck, in your hand, and anywhere. I just stop. And that's it, because a lot of it happens from tense. If you're not relaxed, your body gets tense and then you get injured. So I'm aware of it. You know, if I start to feel anything, even my back or something, I just stop or I get up or I move around. And, you know, the problem is sometimes when you do tours, <clears throat> when you do those tours that I do, if I do a tour with my trio and it's like a three week or a month tour, you, you play almost every night. And that's a lot of playing. So you feel your hands after a while. So you just have to rest when you're not playing, and that's it. And then sometimes you have to just, when you finish the tour, you have to just rest for a minute. Sure. I had sure. one time, I remember a couple of years ago, I finished like some European tour, and I came home, and my hands were a little hurting. But I did some acupuncture and, I don't know, soaked my hands with water. You know, it was fine. Yep. You yep. just have to be, you have to be very aware of it. If there's any pain... 
or any stiffness, you have to stop and figure out what's going on. Because if you keep going, that's how you get injured. Sure. How about your hearing? Do you have you what? worn ear? <laughs> have you worn earplugs over the years? Do you wear in-ear monitors when you're playing live? I wore in-ear monitors when I've done this uh, one or two pop tours. I hate it. It's freaking awful, but it's comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I play pretty loud, but not crazy loud. And I have a thing. If it gets too loud, my ear starts to get freaked out, and then I know it's too loud, and I either turn down or I put earplugs. But I only put earplugs when it when I get to that point because it's really hard to play with earplugs. It's like mm-hmm. playing underwater, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I could relate to that. Uh, but have you has your hearing suffered at all? Have you had your hearing hearing tested over the years? I've, I've done some hearing tests over the years. I have I've done a bunch. You know, it's it's it's. I think it went down as much as it goes down with anybody in the 21st century. You know what I mean? Like you lose some highs because things are loud and it's very brittle sounding. I think it's okay. Yeah, you're lucky. Some stuff actually comes back. You know, comes up and down. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I have the tinnitus pretty bad, particularly in my left oh, okay. ear. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it comes and goes. When I talk about it, it's the worst because you, you start thinking about it. And you go, oh, shit, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, you know, I, I, when I do my electric band, my trio, then it can get loud. And I, over the years, especially lately, I've been trying to get it uh, to turn down. But it's really hard because the, the nature of the music is kind of hitting and then to get a guitar tone with amps, you have to turn up a little bit and, you know. But I, tr- I try to keep it reasonable because if I don't, then I start suffering. So it's, sure. you know. Yep. Now, you said that the album that I mentioned I listened to last night was about five or six albums ago. How many albums yeah. do you have? Well, I have, I have nine solo albums and one album that is... Um, the side project with actually your uh, uh, the guy from Australia from with Ray Tisseltwaite. So oh, I, ha- I have a band, I have a band called Ozone Squeeze. It's kind of a side project with Ray, and that's one record that we did a couple of years ago. And then I have nine solo albums. I have a ten solo album that's coming out in a couple of months. So basically, ten albums. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, so I think Schizophrenic was number four. Uh, uh, number f- four. Okay. Now, you, you yeah. mentioned Ray Um Yeah. He's known in Australia as the lead singer of Thirsty Merc, which is kind of a, a pop band. But what yeah. a lot of people don't realize is that all the guys in that band are amazing jazz musicians. Sure. And, um, yeah, if anyone was to, to look him up uh, on YouTube, you'll, you'll find him playing jazz piano, any of those guys in that yeah. band there. Uh, it's really surprising. Where's the best place that people can get your albums? I don't know. Anywhere they can get music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, do you sell them on your website or anything like that? I don't sell them. No, I sell, you know, like iTunes or all that kind of stuff or um, Amazon or um, uh, Abstract Logic. Is Most of my records are on Abstract Logic, so uh, that's the record company. I'm not a big. Uh, they're on. They're on streaming too. But I'm a little. Uh, you know, that streaming thing is pretty messed up. So 
I have most of my record on streaming. Like if I release a new record, usually I don't release it on streaming right away. Okay. Um, but because it's really messed up. It's like you put it on streaming, the next thing you know it's on YouTube, and then it's like you made a free record for everybody to just, you know. But um, you, can, you can hear my records everywhere. Cool. You know, Apple Music, I don't know, Spotify, all that evil shit. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Like how little musicians see for their efforts now with the whole streaming it's service. Crime. It's a crime. It is absolutely, and I've seen you know some pretty big names going to um, into the courts to, to bring up, hey, you know, yeah. I used to make this much. Now I've had seven million streams, and barely, it's, it's a, barely pays the rent. It's a real, real problem. Mm. It's it's something that if there's not going to be a solution to that at some point soon, I think. A lot of music is not would not be able to happen anymore. Like a lot of records would not be able to be recorded anymore, and it's just not going to happen, like we used to. Well, when you look at modern music now, it's like people have one song on the radio and then they're gone. There's no no such thing as artist development. They can't make enough money that okay, yep. I've had this hit song. Now I can sit at home and actually practice the art. Of writing a good fucking song and there's no sure. more you know billy joel's or you know just the, tom petty the, the, sure. the great songwriters it's just not a thing anymore these guys are having a minor hit or a major hit but a year or two later they're working at the supermarket because it's just, yeah it's very very problematic even professional songwriters are having a hard time now and producers because there's just no money in this business. And if there's no money, this business is not going to, you know, you have to, it costs money to make music. Mm. It costs money to make any kind of art. So if you don't have that money, that art's going to disappear. You know, there's going to be old records that have happened and there's going to be some records that are being made, but majority of the records are not going to happen at some point mm. because they're becoming like vanity projects, you know, like, like, why would I want to put whatever 20 grand out of my own pocket because no record company is going to put money on a record and lose that money or, or barely making that money back or I don't know. It's like you, if you tour enough, you can make money selling records. But even in tours, nobody people buy those CDs. It's, it's like uh, more like a souvenir, you know what I mean? So. The bottom line is you can't. If that model doesn't make money, then it's gonna stop. You know. So Absolutely. it's it's really tricky, you know. And and think about it, like making a jazz record for ten grand or twenty five grand or whatever. That's one thing. But making a a, a rock or a pop album in the studio, you know, they used to have like a hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand dollars or half a million. I don't know. Now you know they have to make those records for like really low budgets because they can't, you know, sell enough records to cover the cost, you know? Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to ask you about your string and pick choice. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'm going to scan through some of the questions. Folks, if you have questions for Oz, please drop them in the comments um, in the live chat now so I can go through them. But um, Oz, what are you using for strings and for picks? My pick is this. It's a Dunlop 
uh, two point uh, two two millimeters yep. download. It's a very heavy and thick. And strings are the Dario Elevens. That's it. Elevens. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I had to recently dropped down because I had some issues um, from overplaying. Yeah. And I've been a 10 kind of guy for a long time. I went down to nines and then somebody gave me a set of eights to try, just like people used oh. to use in the 70s. Yeah. And I thought they were going to sound terrible, but they sounded great. And it really took a lot of the tension out of playing. Anything I could think of, I could pretty much play without having to fight the string. Yeah. So, um, 11s, man, with some of the chops that you have, you must have strong hands. Not really. Uh, it's not, if you play my guitar, the tension is not that high. It kind of feels almost like 10s, you know? Really? Yeah. Cool. cool. You would be like, whoa, what is this? It's, yeah. I, every couple of years, I try to go down to 10s and I last for two weeks and then goes back up. <laughs> yeah, why is that? I don't know. I try to get back to ten because I see so many great players getting great tones in ten or, or with tens, but I can't get my tone with tens. I don't know. It's something about it. I just doesn't. I don't know what it is. Every every once in a while I do it. I go like, oh fuck it, let me put tens on. Sure, sure. And, it, and then I go back to elevens. <laughs> okay, Oz. I'm just having a look at some of the, the questions here. Uh, okay. Liam Keeney is asking, Oz, can you talk about your recent ear training with Doron? Oh, yeah, Doron, yeah. Doron. Yeah. Well, I always wanted to do ear training and, and uh, uh, you know, reading music, how do you call it, solfege, you know, when you can kind of... I always wanted to do it, and I did it a little bit here in New York with a friend of mine, but it wasn't consistent. The thing is, you have to start, you have to do it all the time, and I knew this guy in Israel, he's pretty amazing, he's, you know, he's that's what he does. He's a great guitar player, but he teaches in university. He teaches that. And I've done some stuff with him. And I called him. I was like, hey, man, because of the corona thing, i got so much time now. I was like, hey, can you teach me? And he goes like, yeah, because he's like a professional teacher for that stuff. And it's been freaking great. Cool. Cool. Really, really highly recommended to do. And, and is this pitch recognition or is this like frequency recognition? No, it's like it's you know it's like recognizing chords, intervals, scales. Um, you know, looking at the music and be able to sing it or, or or hear it. Awesome. It's really I'll tell you a funny story. When I st I did the first lesson with him, he played those chords on the piano and I couldn't hear shit. I was like, and I felt so embarrassed. And he uh, and he goes like, man, you play all this great stuff on a guitar and stuff and. And all this jazz stuff, but you can't hear this really simple stuff. I was like, oh, I guess not, because I never studied it. And I felt really horrible. And I went to one time, I, I go to Mike Stern, he's a good friend of mine. I, went to, I go to Stern's house to play. And I told him, I was like, hey, man, you know, I started to do this thing. And he played me all these chords, and I couldn't even hear the intervals and stuff. And Mike has an amazing ear. Like, he can he really hear stuff. You know, it's something that if you practice, it develops. And he told me a funny story. He told me that he told me that when he was playing with Miles Davis, he one time Bill Evans was in a band, and Bill told Mike, told Miles, like Miles, check this shit out. And he played this really fancy chord, and he, he goes to Mike to Stern, and he goes like, Hey, Mike, what are the notes on that chord? So Mike told, you know, figure out all the chord, all the notes, 
And Miles' response was like, who gives a shit? <laughs> so after, Classic. So Mike says like, don't worry about it. You hear what you hear. It's cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I've got another question here from Nicola. Um, Oz, which funk guitar players would you recommend checking out? Um, I would recommend checking out certain, like, you know, James Brown is the Bible of that stuff. Earth, Wind & Fire is great stuff. Um, Prince is a great rhythm guitar player, Jesus. But, you know, there's a lot of studio, there's a lot of records from, like, this, you know, like, the old, some of those early Michael Jackson records where Prince produces great rhythm guitar stuff, some Chaka Khan, you know. That's the stuff that I, I'm into. Cool, cool. Rhythm and Cliff Gold wants to know, what's in the future for Oz Musical.ly? I'm releasing another record. I was supposed to release, actually, it was supposed to release in April, and then we pushed it to September, and now it's going to probably come out in November. But that that's all I have right now, and now everything kind of stopped. So I don't know. I'm just waiting for this shit to come back to some kind of normality, and then I'll be back doing stuff like everybody's waiting really yeah yeah but i have a record that's been done for a while so to me i can't really do anything until it gets released you know uh-huh it is interesting times i've been making the most of it mate and just putting out some yeah. some, some calls to people so who's up for a chat and sure. uh, it's amazing who'll say yes if you if you ask nicely and i want to thank you for taking the time and having a chat with me it's been awesome. great. Folks, if you've got any more questions, I'm going to round things up now. So speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just going to say, folks, uh, if you've been watching my Chit Chats with GitKat series, thank you so much. Uh, a like, a, a subscribe, and a share would go a long way. So please do so. And um, thanks. Every, uh, let's all thank Oz for his time. And... <laughs> I will see you guys next time. Thank you again, Oz. Thank you. Okay. Uh -huh. Bye, folks.